going to move that. Can I set that right there? I don't even know what that is. There's a baby monitor. Oh, okay. So if that goes off, do I need to go help? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't think they want my help. I raised five kids, but my wife changed all the diapers. I'm just saying, okay? Well, good morning. It's great to see you all this morning. It's an honor for me to be here with you on behalf of Steve Ballou and all the other staff at the Baptist Convention. Greetings, except for Tar. Tar didn't tell me to tell y'all hi, so just kidding, just kidding. I, I just, I was all the way down here, I was thinking, I'm going to say that. I'm going to get Tar in trouble with his folks, so. But don't tell him I said that. Just tell him somebody said he didn't say hi to everybody else. But Well, it's an honor to be with you all this morning. I just want to share a couple of words of testimony from camp this summer. We we're so grateful for the partnership that we have with all of the churches, all the Baptist churches in the state of New Mexico, and the faithful prayers and the continued generosity to the cooperative program. Thank you so much for participating in that. Without that, we wouldn't be able to do the ministries that we're able to do across the state. And it's not just what happens out of Albuquerque, but it's the churches working together and serving together to put a dent in darkness. You know, there's a lot of lost people in New Mexico, and it takes all of us to be able to reach them. So thanks for that, for the prayers and the and the generosity. In fact, give more. Give more if you can, okay? We would appreciate that. But I just wanted to share a couple of testimonies from camp, just so you'll hear the, you know, sometimes you may not know the money that you give that goes to Albuquerque, and we send it out across the state, and we send it on to the International Mission Board, and, and things like that, and to the seminaries, you know, how the cooperative program works. If you don't, ask me, and I'll be glad to explain how all that works for you. But some testimonies from camp this year. One student said, this year I decided to give my life to God, I'm the first person in my family to give my life to God. It's my first year at camp, and I'm really happy that I came. Another student said, this is my first year at camp. It's not been disappointing at all. It's been fun sharing my growth in Christ with my friends. This week, I learned that your status, materialism, things that you're holding on to in your life, uh, doesn't mean anything in the eyes of God. What matters is your faith and how you worship. A year ago, I was agnostic. To say that I am attending church camp this year is mind-blowing to me. It's all thanks to the people around me that have put me in the right place, or excuse me, put me on the right path to Christ. I'll share one more testimony. Something that I've been thinking about for a while is whether or not I'm being called to ministry. This week, camp has helped me to reinforce, or helped to reinforce that call. I will see exactly where God may be leading me. I feel especially, uh, oops, sorry. I feel especially called to youth ministry. As a teenager of this generation, I've seen a lot of pain, struggles, and the sin. It breaks my heart to see so many people this way. They seem completely lost with no reason to live. I really want them to know that there is hope. So th that's just three testimonies of the many, many uh, few hundred students between the three weeks of camp that we have that the Baptist Convention puts on for, for youth ministry anyway. There were children's camps and missions camp and music camp and all that kind of stuff like that too. But I just know about the three weeks of youth camp, and it's because of your generosity that we're able to hear testimonies like that. We're able to put on a, have a program where the students can get away from their regular routine in life and spend some time really listening intently to the Lord. So thank you again for that. I just felt like you would be encouraged to hear that. You all did that by your gifts to the cooperative program. So if you would turn to Philippians chapter 2, <laughs> y'all are ready, you're like, He's, any minute, he's going to have us get our Bibles out. I just feel it. I feel it. Here it is right here. Philippians chapter 2. The sermon, as you see in the bulletin there, is uh, the title is The Surprising Sweetness of Humble Pie. 
Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will you join me in prayer for a moment? Father, thank you so much for allowing us to be together in this place. Thank you for your word and the way that you use it to instruct us, to guide us, even, Father, to convict us. Lord, I pray that our hearts and minds will be open to receive the word that you have for each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Before we jump into the message, I forgot, I'm not used to this because my wife doesn't get to travel with me on a regular basis, but my wife Brenda is with me this morning, so uh, Brenda, glad you're here. (laughs) One time I forgot completely to introduce her, and I heard about it all the way back to Albuquerque. Not really. (laughs) See, she doesn't even like this little bit of attention I'm paying to her right now. You are really cute, though. Okay, let's move on. We... Humans, we people, we the people, (laughs) we have a foundational problem in our lives. It's pride. All of us suffer with pride. Pride is destructive. Uh, If we live a prideful life, we are not humble and we struggle to keep, uh, to treat people with kindness or compassion or gentleness or patience or accepting one another in in, in forgiveness. To be able to live those characteristics out in our lives, to be the way that Jesus wants us to be, to be, to treat other people the way that Jesus would want us to treat other people, it takes humility. There are a lot of virtues in our lives that won't come naturally to us. Humility is one of those, of course. It's something that we all struggle with, and I'm happy to stand before you this morning to say that I have completely conquered pride. I'm completely humble. I know it doesn't sound that I'm humble, but when you've worked so hard at something that is so difficult, it's only natural to be proud of your efforts. So I stand humbly before you as someone who has completely conquered pride. (laughs) Thank you for laughing at that. I appreciate it. I'm always worried when I tell that story that somebody might think, my goodness, he is really humble. I'm thankful for that. Pride, pride is one of those things that is completely, can be extremely, let me say it that way, can be extremely damaging in our lives. Our faulty and our selfish belief is that if we just get our way, that's what would make us happy. So we live a prideful life, and we live selfishly, and we pursue our own way. And if we're not careful, if we don't keep a check on our pride, it can cause great harm in our family. Uh, it can cause... Uh, great harm in our friendships, and it can certainly cause problems for us in our church family. I know that in my own life, I can trace uh, 99% of the arguments that my wife and I have had 
uh, to my own selfishness and my own pride. And I would say that, uh, I mean, I said that with her sitting here, but I, that's the first time she's ever heard that. It's my fault, hon, okay? But the simple fact is that I usually want my own way, and that's, that's a lot of what causes the conflict that we, we might have. And it's not just my wife and I, but in any conflict that I have, it's because I want my own way. And it's because I'm prideful and selfish. So this morning, I want to take a look at what Paul says about this idea uh, when he's talking to the believers who would gather in Philippi concerning the attitude that every believer should have toward one another. So let's go back and look again at verses 1 and 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, then make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So he's really not, because that word, we've translated the word if in our English, at least in my version of, the, of this passage, it says if, it makes it sound like it's a question. It's like Paul is saying, if this exists. But really, it, it would be more accurate to say since these things exist. Paul's making an assumption that he's writing to the believers in Philippi that these characteristics are already existing in your life since these things exist, since there's uh, love and since there's compassion, since uh, there's fellowship with the Spirit, because of all of that stuff, then make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love. In other words, continue to do what you're doing and just do it better is the implication that we see from Paul here. He, he's making a statement with the full knowledge that someone who follows Christ should have these characteristics in their life or at least begin to dis- to display those characters, characteristics in their life. We understand that the transformation that takes place in our lives is, is a process. It's not something that we wake up one morning and all of a sudden we've arrived in our discipleship and we're exactly where God wants us to be. We may be where God wants us to be, but there's more for us to learn. There's more, for the, there's more in our journey, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord or how short we've been walking with the Lord. So there's an assumption, again, like I said, that Paul makes that, that all of us, all followers of Jesus, should have these characteristics and should have them more and more. And one of the things that Paul is concerned about as we read about this letter or read about it in the, the letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi is the unity of the believers. Notice what he says here, thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Another translation states it this way, be like-minded have the same love, be one in spirit and purpose. Now those, base, those are kind of based on the same thing. He's, it's like he's saying the same thing three different ways for emphasis. You know how when we say something to somebody and then we repeat it, we might say, state it a little bit differently, but we repeat it because we want to drive it home. Well, Paul is doing that same thing here with us to drive home the important, uh, the important fact that that unity in the body of Christ is essential for us to be able to accomplish the ministry that God has called each one of us to do. And it takes a life of humility to be uh, unified. It's rooted in humility, the way we treat one another and how we speak with one another. In fact, in, in chapter 1 of this letter, verse 27, he already introduced this idea of unity. He says, just one thing, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, and that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side for the faith of the gospel. He had already kind of introduced this idea of unity in the body of Christ. 
And this appeal that he's making to unity is based on the assumption that unity is a fruit in the life of a believer. We will work at getting along with one another. We may not always agree with one another, but we work at getting along with one another. That's, that's a part of what being in the, f- in the family is about. We, we notice that in our, in our natural families or our biological families or whatever kind of family context we have, right? But that's also true in our church family as well. It's something we have to work towards. So if you live with unity with one another, Paul is basically saying, your efforts will complete the joy that I already have, that I've already experienced, and it, it helps us all to grow in our unity that we have for one another in Christ. And then Paul goes, in verses 3 and 4, he goes on to give some direction as to how that unity can take place. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Again, Paul is basically speaking about love here. He doesn't necessarily use that word, but he's, he's pointing to that. That's the foundation of what he's talking about. One commentator says, and I'm quoting him, love and humility go together. You cannot have one without the other. And then he quotes Dr. Martin Luther King, who once said, love is the only force in the universe powerful enough to change an enemy into a friend. In all that we do, we have to make sure that we're never just promoting ourselves or our own agenda or getting the glory that only God deserves. This rivalry that Paul is talking about, or another way to think of it is selfish ambition that he's addressing here, refers to this idea of serving out of a what's-in-it-for-me attitude. Sometimes we do that. We serve out of that, and that's, of course, rooted in pride and not in humility. And so we need to learn, and as we grow in our faith with Christ, or grow in our faith in Christ, that we need to learn to serve God and others because it's the right thing to do and not because we will ever get anything out of it. We may or may not get something out of serving others, but we should do it because that's what God, God has continued, or what God has called us to do. I heard a story about a mom who was preparing pancakes for her sons, one Kevin who was about five and Ryan who was about three, and they began to argue about who's going to get the first pancake. You know how that goes, right? So their mom saw the opportunity for a moral lesson, and she says, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. And so Kevin, the older one, turned to the younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. We have to all guard against our natural tendency to serve or to help others out of a I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of a mentality. That's how the world works. I'll do something for you and I'm going to expect something in return. But that's not how the kingdom works. It it goes against our nature to serve selflessly. It's through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit working in us that allows us, that leads us, that helps us to be able to serve in this way, to serve selflessly rather than selfishly. Paul uses the word conceit, or another translation says vain conceit. Another translation says empty conceit. Just depends on which one you read, but they all mean the same thing. It's the basic idea of promoting yourself. I will often tease in a crowd, like at a potluck lunch, for example, when the people around me are finished eating, and I'll 
especially if it's, you know, paper plates, then it's easy. I'll say, let me do the dishes, and I'll gather up the plates. And, and somebody inevitably will say, Sam, you're such a servant. And this is my usual response. I'm, I'm only serving because there's an audience watching. If it was you and I, you would take your own stuff to the trash can. I tease about that, but really, that's how we are. That's, that's the natural way for us to be. We, we have to allow God to continue to transform our hearts to grow to that point when we're willing to serve whether we get recognition for it or not. One theologian says, Humility is a uniquely Christian virtue, which, like the message of a crucified Messiah, stands in utter contradiction to the values of the Greco-Roman world, which generally, uh, generally consider humility not a virtue but a shortcoming. In that day and age, the folks who would have heard this letter, the folks in Philippi who would have heard this read to them for the very first time when they gathered together, this idea of serving out of humility and treating one and being humble yourself would have been a revolutionary idea. In fact, it would have been completely foreign to them, much like it is in our day. Some, some of us, when we hear, uh, some, some in our world, when we hear the idea of be a humble servant and put others first, we're like, that's, that's not how... That's not how we do things in America. We're, it's us first or me first. It was all about strength or perceived strength, and it was all about ego. And again, we, we've seen that in our day, haven't we, in, in many different contexts. We even sometimes celebrate it, unfortunately. We give awards and we heap accolades on all those who have such egos that they don't care who they trample on to get to the top. There's no sense of graciousness or humility in our world. It's like people say, I am the greatest, and this award for this achievement uh, is, uh, or this record-breaking event, or the fact that I've been employee of the month for the past six months proves that uh, what I have always known, I am better than everyone else. That's, that's the attitude of the world, and that's the attitude that we have to fight against as Christ is working in our lives. America is an amazing place. People have come from all over the world to pursue what has become known as the American dream. It's something that many pursue. We have this weak, we have this uh, 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 can-do attitude. We have some of the most innovative people in the world. Technologies, architecture, Chick-fil-A, Krispy Kreme, all of those things. Those are all give us reason to be proud, right? But I, I believe, even in looking at my own life, that humility is a great need in our day and in our world. I just recently finished a really good book by a fellow named John Ortberg, and it's entitled, Who Is This Man? And in it, he says this. He says, the gravitational pull of the ego is relentless. I sometimes wonder whether those of us in the church are just as preoccupied with honor and status as anyone else. We just covered over with a thin veneer of spiritual language. We develop our own cult of celebrities. We prefer uh, the wealthy or the attractive or the successful. We often do not live in the way of Jesus. And so we have to be careful also in thinking about humility that in our humility, in living out humility, that we're not living with this false humility or that we're timid to the point where we don't speak up. Nobody likes to be around people like that. Oh, oh don't worry about me. I'm nothing to fuss over. Rather, as another theologian says, it has to do with proper estimation of oneself. The stance of the creature before the creator, utterly dependent and trusting. Here, one is well aware both of one's weaknesses 
and of one's glory, where in God's image, after all, but makes neither too much nor too little of either. He goes on to say, true humility is therefore not self-focused at all, but rather, as further defined by Paul, considers others better than yourselves. Paul clarifies this when he says everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. So we don't neglect ourselves. We just think of others first, whereas we have the tendency, it's natural for us to think of ourselves first and then deal with others. We, uh, my oldest daughter and her husband and their four kids are living with us right now because he's the new youth pastor at one of the churches in Albuquerque. He, they left Hobbs and have moved to Albuquerque, and they've been living with us for, I don't know, a couple months or something like that. And, you know, it's been a while since we've had that many. We have five kids, so we're used to the noise, but it's been a while since we've had that much noise in our house. And those children eat a lot. <laughs> and I have found myself, I, I love dark chocolate peanut M&Ms, and I found myself the other day buying a bag and hiding it in the back of the pantry so that the children, because they will just go and help themselves. You know, their moms, mom and dad does their best to try to regulate that, but you know how kids can be. We all used to be kids. We all have kids, right, or most of us. So I, I was, was sort of convicted on the fact that I was hiding my dark chocolate peanut M&Ms from my grandchildren. But I was okay with that. <laughs> Until I realized that the Lord wanted me to speak about humility and not being selfless or s- selfish. He wants me to be selfless, so I put the bag where they could kind of see it. I think they found it (laughs) because it's almost empty, but that's a whole other Bible study right there. But it's, it's the idea of not neglecting myself, not neglecting ourselves, but putting others first, thinking of others first. Here's a, here's a beautiful example. Whenever you make the trip to Walmart, you, you all probably don't go to Walmart that much, but if you do, whatever grocery store or whatever you go to, they have the cart corral, you know, and it's way over there, you know, like 20 feet away from your car, and you just leave it right here in the parking lot for somebody else to run over. <laughs> That's thinking of yourself first. I'm just trying to illustrate it simply. The one way to put others first is to walk it that 20 feet or 90 feet, however far it is away, and park it in the corral. The reason is because there's two reasons. One, you're not going to ding anybody else's car by having a basket roll through the parking lot or somebody not see it and run over it. Two, the poor guy who has to come out from the store and gather up all of those baskets, they're on one place instead of all over the parking lot so they can get them back in the store for everybody else. That's a simple way for us to think of others first instead of myself. Is it hot outside? Yeah. Is it cold outside? Yeah. Is it raining? Yeah. That doesn't matter. Put the cart back in the thing. (laughs) There may be a little personal issues with that, too. Uh, I'm confessing to you. But it's humility, again, is not this idea of neglecting yourself, but it's thinking of others first and then taking care of yourself. Love begins when someone else's need is more important than my own. It's a great way for us to demonstrate love. And I, I feel like that the conflicts that we have in our churches all around, all around, could, could disappear if we would just simply learn to live and serve in humility. Humility before God and humility with one another. We've got to break out as the church in general. We've got to break out of this selfishness that's robbing us of the joy that we could experience if we would learn to put others first. It's not easy. 
But as followers of Christ, we're commanded, as Jesus himself said in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new command I give you to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Because, as Jesus continues, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. By putting others first, we are being a witness to the world. It's one of the ways that we're able to witness to the world. And then notice what Paul says here in chapter 2 of Philippians in verse 5. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Another translation states it this way, make your attitude that of Christ Jesus. And if Paul would have stopped right there, if, th- if this passage would have just been Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, that would have been great. We would have said, that's outstanding, Paul. That's a great lesson for us to learn. Let's, let's go out and live that way. Let's bring glory to God by allowing the, the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts and, and lead us in living that way. But I think what Paul does is he adds, he's thinking of an illustration. Most, most preachers, most writers, we want to have a good illustration, right? And so he's saying, be humble, put others first. I need a good illustration. And then he explains, he writes this whole little beautiful summary of what Christ came and did for us to point to the greatest example of a person who lived a life of humility. Now, there's a lot of deep, thick theological truth that Paul summarized in those few verses in verses 6 through 11. But I, I also think that just in the simplicity of it, Paul was saying, be this way because remember, this is how Jesus was, and he laid it out for us to remind us. It's an illustration. I love how the Phillips paraphrase renders this passage. Verses 6 through 11, For he who had always been God by nature did not cling to his prerogative as God's equal, but stripped himself of all the privilege by consenting to be a slave by nature and being born as mortal man. And having become man, he humbled himself by living a life of death, I'm sorry, utter obedience, even to the extent of dying, and the death he died was the death of a common criminal. And that is why God has now lifted him so high and has given him the name beyond all names, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or earth or under the earth, and that is why in the end every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a a beautiful way that Phillips rendered that for us to understand that. Jesus did all of that to not only show us how to live live with one another, but also how we can have a right relationship with God the Father, that he might receive all of the glory because he and he alone is worthy of all of the glory. He willingly gave up his rights as God for a time, and during that time he became a slave. He humbled himself. Someone said that in that day someone might be, might be humbled by losing money or status or a job title, but no one humbled himself. I think that's true in our day, too. There's very few of us who, there's uh, hardly any of us who would be willing to humble ourselves. Many of us are humbled in one way or another, but the, the conscious decision to humble ourselves and behave in a way that points others to Jesus is a, is a tough thing for us. So think about this. God, the creator of the universe, came to us as a human. He died a criminal's death, which, by the way, crucifixion, according to Ortberg, was reserved particularly for slaves. It was informally known as the slave's punishment. 
and he was resurrected, proving once, or for, once and for all that God and God alone has power over death and the grave. And that very same God then teaches us to put others first. There were many in that day who were looking for the Messiah to come to be a conquering king who would rid them of the oppression of the government. At that particular time, it was the Romans, but to establish Israel as a kingdom that most powerful so that nobody else would bother him anymore. But that's not the way Jesus came. He came as a humble servant. For the Son of Man, Jesus says in the Gospels, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He humbled himself to the point of death. And so we, looking at the example that Jesus sets for us, and reading what the scriptures say that, that God inspired Paul to write to the church at Philippi and through history to us as well to live out. We see this and we, we've got to begin to learn to live like humble servants in the kingdom so that God receives all of the glory. That we would be more God-centered and less self-centered. That we would be more others-centered and less self-centered. So I have a question for you this morning. Are you ready for dessert? How about a nice, large slice of humble pie? The first couple of bites might be a little difficult for us to swallow. It won't go down easy, but it's something that we all know that we need. So we shouldn't pass it up when we're offered the dessert of humble pie. In fact, some of us probably need to ask for seconds so that we can learn to be more and more like Jesus. It's time for dessert. Let's have some humble pie. Father, thank you for being here with us this morning. We're so grateful that you have given us your scriptures, that you, uh, when you created us and put us on this planet, that you didn't just leave us to live life in our own way, but you have given us instruction and guidance. We're so grateful for that, Lord, because we surely would mess it up. We have your instruction and your guidance, and we mess it up. Thank you, Father, for in the whole scheme of creation that you were thoughtful enough to provide a way for us to hear from you through the scripture. And so, Lord, as we chew on and think about what we've learned from the letter to the Philippians that you inspired Paul to write. Father, help us to examine our own hearts, to ask, ask you to open our hearts uh, and to reveal to us how we're doing as far as living in humility. And help us, Lord, to be more humble. Help us to be more willing to put others' needs first above our own to follow the example of Jesus and the instruction that you inspired, write, uh, inspired Paul to write for us to follow. Lord, during this time, I just pray that you would help us to respond in a way that would be obedient to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We want to take just a moment to give you an opportunity to respond. Nothing magical about the end of a message, the invitation time, whatever you want to call it, but it's a strike while the iron is hot type of a moment. So if you're wrestling with something the Lord is dealing, working in your life about, and you'd like to, some prayer, I'd love an opportunity to, to pray with you. Marlon will be here as well to, to pray. We'll just be here to receive you during that.
I never want to assume anything. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never received that free gift of eternal life that God offers to us through Jesus. That because of sin, all humans are born under that curse of sin and are, we are separated from God. But, but Jesus came and shed his blood, took our place on the cross to shed his own blood, to provide a way for us to be made right with God. And if we will turn from our own way of living and receive that free gift and receive uh, the love of, of Christ in that way and believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths, believe in our hearts that, that Jesus is Lord and confess with our mouths that, that God raised him from the dead, then we too can be part of the family of God. I never, ever want to make that assumption. So maybe you're here this morning and you've, God's been kind of dealing with you about that. I would love an opportunity. Marvin and I would both love an opportunity to share with you about that. However God is leading you, however, whatever kind of decision that you need to make, if it needs to be public, then I would encourage you to do that this morning as we stand together.